I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today, we will talk with two very special people in my life, Lynn and Keith Apple. Today, we're going to talk about the life and death of their son and my first love, Rob Apple. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. We have been in Ohio for this week and been here at Otterbein talking a lot about uh, the book that I just recently published and uh, chapter seven is about your son, Rob Apple. And so um, it's uh, very um, touching for me to welcome Lynn and Keith Apple to my podcast for the very first time. And I, I have to say many friends and family know who you are and have never met you and they know your son and it's really nice to kind of have this conversation face to face in front of you guys. So tell me a little bit about Rob when he was a boy and I want to know all the things he would not tell me. (laughs) (laughs) He was very energetic and lively. He, my mother said when we had, when we were waiting to have our second that she would be a quiet little girl because we would to be we would be too busy out plucking Rob out of trees, which was all true. <laughs> so he's always been really big into nature mm-hmm. and adventure mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. What do you remember? Uh, he was conscientious about a lot of things, not perfect, but conscientious. And um, he um, he really uh, spent a lot of time reading, I remember that, uh, and that carried on through his life. Um, he had adventures, which we found about later, where he hit golf balls off of the roof of the middle school. What? Well, he and his friend, um, his Hi, good they friend. They were on the high school golf team. They were. And Rob they was thought, on the golf team? He was. That he, he was small for his age. All the way through, he was the smallest person in his class. And that was a challenge for sports. And so finally, he found his sport, though, in golf. And then he was on the Purdue golf team. He, he was very good at golf. I remember but, him calling me from the yeah. FBI Academy, to because we got some hard rain. He goes, can you go to the, uh, the storage shed to check on my golf clubs? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Very important. <laughs> very important. Right. And, that, and he was proud of the... The fact it was interesting because on the Purdue team, you had to really qualify for each match. You weren't just once you're in, you were in. You had to keep your scores low enough to qualify each time. So that that um, occupied a lot of his time. He also turned out to be a good um, counselor or. Um, Teacher for some of the for, for some of the athletes who needed extra class time, and there was one star basketball player on the Purdue team who was struggling at, at the time a little bit on his grades. So Rob was his uh, mentor, tutor, tutor. And, yeah, I forgot uh, that. And uh, 
I think that was not only appreciated by Purdue, but was appreciated by the by the uh, athlete. And um, he went on to other things, but um, he really immersed himself in school. After he got to Purdue. After he got to Purdue. In, in high school. High school, it was not so much. He, he had an application for the FBI over his desk that he got when he was about 11 or 12. And that was the only reason he could think of to study that dumb stuff in high school. Oh, that's what he said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he, he got into the National Honor Society purposely with the lowest grade possible to do that. He knew where the line was. <laughs> he, he just took pride in that because he, in high school, he was not a student. He just did what he should right on the edge. And then in, in college, it got very interesting and he really buckled down. So he's been wanting to be part of the FBI for 12? I, I think he was about 12. Why? What, what sparked that interest? I'm not sure, except my cousin, who um, lived in Fort Wayne, not too far from our home. Um, he went into the service very young. He, he was in command of like 30 men by the time he was 17 or 18 years old in the South Pacific in World War II. He came back. And as a police officer, moved up the ranks and became captain of detectives for the city of Fort Wayne. And he was a beacon for Rob. Hmm. um, They didn't spend a lot of time together, but he was always impressed with Richard. And um, I think that that was the initial spark. And then on a vacation, we went to the FBI building and... They have these standard form SF-171s, and I got him one. That's one I filled out when I entered the public health service. Um, and he took it home and pinned it to the top of his bedhead, and um, that, was his, that was his goal. I mean, it was just amazing because it caused him, I think, to bloom mm. as, mm-hmm. a, as a student. Mm-hmm. Because he was really pretty shy in, in his growing up years. He was a little bit, believe it or not, quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Although we heard more later about high school wasn't as quiet as we were led to believe. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So, you know, how did he, so he graduated from Purdue. Mm -hmm. He's still thinking about the FBI. Mm -hmm. So what took him to North Carolina? He knew he knew he needed at least a master's degree, um, preferably a higher degree than that. And um, he needed three years of official police work, blue collar, as his one competitor in the FBI referred to it. Um, So he did his time. um, And part of that, there were dicey times where he got a call near the end of his service as a police officer. And there was someone greeting a commotion and he went knocked on the front door of this house, and the door opened. There was a man standing there with a shotgun leveled, and Rob just reached in, pushed it away. So that was probably a week before he left for the FBI Academy. Um, But even at the the very first day he worked as an officer, he was sitting in his squad car, and a van drove past, and it had a loose plate and I think a dangling wire out of where the license plate would be. So he threw on his Mars light and his sirens. Which he said is so cool. Was so, so cool. 
and the van was full of marijuana. It was just a a happenstance, but it was the right time to stop the van. Mm. Um, and everything went smoothly, but uh, it was interesting, just his intuition, like, uh, I think we've got something here. Isn't that funny? Now, was he, he was a police officer with the North Carolina State University, correct? Correct. So he was going to school, getting his master's. Was, was. It, I think it was sociology. What? Sociology. And he actually, when he, he had done so well in sociology and had an honors paper and such at Purdue, that he applied to graduate school. And North Carolina State was one of the couple that he was accepted at and gave him a good, I don't know, was it a full ride? I can't remember. Wow. But it was, it was a good deal. It was very good. <clears throat> Whatever it was. And so at that point, he thought that he was going to go on and get a PhD in sociology and probably teach sociology. Well, by the middle to the end of the first semester, he was going, no, 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 can't do this. It's sitting still too much. And he said, it's getting really boring already, <laughs> first semester of grad school. Because when they would tell jokes, they would tell sociology jokes. And he said <laughs> it didn't lead to much excitement. It was kind of a drowsy afternoon type activity. So he, he <laughs> just had to have that physical activity. And so he applied to the police department because he could still work on his master's, but have that movement and excitement. And but it was still in the back of his head that he wanted to be in the FBI. Mm -hmm, right. right. You know, he started, as he did more police work, he started circling back to that. Interesting. Yeah, he thought that PhD stuff was not going to work for him. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so, uh, go ahead. And at one time, he was on a bike patrol. I don't <clears throat> remember exactly what year this was, but some young person ran out of a sh shoe store with shoes. And so Rob, being on his bike, could take off across the parking lot, zigging and zagging. And when he got near the edge of the parking lot, there was a wooded area. And he literally, I think, dove off the, the bike and tackled the guy. And he said the guy was a lot stronger than he thought he was. So for a while, he thought, maybe this is, wasn't my best idea. <laughs> but, it, but he finally subdued the uh, perp, so to speak, <laughs> and... Um, we talked later that day or the next night, and I said, well, was that kind of, um, and did it, was it scary, or he said, oh, no, that was great. Jeez. <laughs> Rolling over in the dirt and, uh, and finally uh, subduing the guy. That's mm -hmm. crazy. So when he had graduated with his master's and then he got into the Garner Police Department, mm -hmm. or was that prior to him graduating? Mm, we're both trying to remember where that went. He left the, uh, the NC State to go to Garner. I think he was still working on his master's because he didn't like the, the university at the university. Right. And so actually one summer he worked on house construction. And while he was trying to get a different job, he just kind of quit the police department, mm. which made us uneasy, but at the university. didn't worry him. And, uh, so then he started Gardner. I think he still had some to, to go on the, on the degree because he just did it a, a course or two at a time because he was working full time by wow. then. And he wasn't really very interested in it anymore. <laughs> Jeez. So, so, when, so he was in Garner for how long prior to the FBI? Was it just? Just a few years. Oh, so I'm, wow. I'm going to say three. What would you say? I would say three. Okay, that's a guess. But the total time in North Carolina was about seven. 
six or seven. Yeah, or eight. And, and when he would return home, he had a little bit of a southern accent. <laughs> and I really, when people would say, well, does he live, where does he live? I would never say Indiana. I mean, he he seemed, that was his new home. He identified with that part of the country and the people and... And that was where he lived. Hmm. So did when did he start saying that he was dating me? Did he ever speak of me with mm-hmm. you guys? Um, yeah, but he didn't, typical of him, he didn't give us any much information, just the pictures. <laughs> so that's the first introduction. So. Well, I mean, he had talked about you, but I, I can't think why. Oh, you were out of town when we came down. The fact we, we never met was just by chance. Right. And when he came home, you were working, so he you couldn't come. Right. So just... Yeah, so... Yeah, yeah we dated, um, oh, right at a year, a little over a mm-hmm. year. And um, and yeah, so I remember, because I was interested in, in possibly going into the FBI as well, and my dad was Virginia State Police, so there was just a lot of commonalities when, when you date a police officer and... and um, and so Rob was just training all that time. And there was, there was just so many things that I recall, though, that were just specific to him, like him, you know, cooking the cheese blintzes that you say was a family tradition. Mm-hmm. Right. And he cooked that for me. And um, he loved off-street movies, like not the hated big time blockbuster yeah, like films. Titanic. He, he was very put off by Titanic. Way too much money. That's R- what he, Ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so that came out and he wouldn't go with me. And I believe it was over Christmas or something because my, my family and, and he was working. And so we all went. And of course, you know, I talked about it for as a woman for months and he's mm. like, I hate that movie. Yeah, I hate I, it. I, exactly. You know, and I'm like, you haven't even seen it. But mm-hmm. he introduced me to films like uh, The English Patient, mm-hmm. uh, which was such a great mm-hmm. film. Casablanca. And, yeah. Casablanca was, he gave me that for a Christmas. In um, Fargo. He, he took us to Fargo when we were down there. Oh, yes. really? Yeah. yeah. And he always loved to eat at good places and test his palate. He loved the going to nice restaurants and ordering stuff that I'm not sure I would eat, but just oh, kind of interesting to try it, anything to try new. it. Yeah. Anything new. And I do remember a couple of times, um, it was a huge rock climber has all, he's always mm. been a part of nature though. Right. True. True. Yeah. Well, he, um, did a lot of, uh, canoe trips to Canada. Was he an Eagle Scout? It was it was a scout thing, but it wasn't through the eagles. He, um, Lynn mentioned early on about how small he was in, in <laughs> stature, and this is this trip to Canada that was done every year by a man in our community um, who took kids who really hadn't camped before. I mean, this was the type of thing. It was an outward bound type camping, and people. The, the theory was you took the food you needed, you might fish some, but then if you had refuse, you carried out what you could not uh, dispose of underground, and, and all the metal and glass you, you packed back out of Canada. He was very e- ecologically minded, and um, he took them to places where... Um, they were really isolated from from any type of human contact, and um, 
he and all our, his two sisters eventually went on that type of trip. But my point in bringing it up is after he returned from that first trip, he actually physically looked bigger. He, he was transformed. He really grew up on that trip. He was probably a freshman in high school, I think. Yes. And one of the other guys on the trip was very large. He was from a very tall family. And Rob actually saved him on that trip because he hung up on something with the, the string in his jacket. And he was stuck and choking. And Rob noticed and, and they were in the water. took care of it. Were they in the water? I yeah. don't remember where. And it was pulling on him. Um, so he was good under pressure. Um, when he when he interviewed several times, many times for the FBI. So this was he interviewed several times. Yes. Well, and just each, just and the one time he started the process. So he, he was a, he was possibly accepted, but he was going through all the interview. Physi- right. You have to have right. this physical test. It takes a whole year that you have what to start with. The written test starts, I think. Yes. And he'd, he'd then be call us and say, oh, it was awful. It was awful. There's no way. And then he'd call back about a week later and say, oh, I passed. Oh, good. <laughs> I still remember but, the one test. He was in a room. He he went to a motel. Yeah. He was put in a room and there, what he was in this, <clears throat> at this table and there was an, three FBI agents, one on each side of him and one facing him. And they just started firing questions. And the first question was, have you ever stolen anything? And he said, sure, paper clips. You know, that could be, well, no. I mean, if somebody says no, they're obviously lying right away because they have at some point in their life taken something that they didn't own. Right. But uh, that went on for hours, that type of... Was that in Charlotte? I mean, I remember him going down to Charlotte. That's a for good this, guess. Yeah, to yeah. this intense thing. And he went down for the day and came back and was completely exhausted. Like he, and, and sure that he had blown it. He said, oh, yeah. I have no idea what I said. And I'm sure I've blown it. And there was, you know, we were just on the phone, but there was great drama. Is that what you saw? Yeah. You know, I mean, oh, he was so upset. You know, like, oh. And then a week later, he'd call and go, oh. I passed this too. <laughs> yeah. So it was like that over a year, there were a couple more steps. And then the, I don't know that they did physical strength testing. They must have at some point. I think they had to had run physical. or something. Well, each Friday when he was at Quantico, the director at that time, Louis Free, would come out on Fridays and run with them for three or four miles. And um, just that connection was important. Hmm. Um, and um, at the graduation, he was disappointed because Free could not be there for the actual graduation at Quantico because that was the time of the bombing of the U.S. coal. Hmm. And he was in Yemen at the time, in, along with other agents investigating that. So, um, so it was like 90 days because I remember he left in May. Right. And he graduated in August. Mm-hmm. Right, correct. So, of course, uh, Apple graduated at the top of his class. Of the academic. Yeah. yeah. And I remember the last weekend I saw him, he came down and was showing me all the little tricks of how to subdue uh, a perp, as you say, Keith. <laughs> and so I got to experience those ta- takedowns. Um <laughs> But um, he went on to graduate at the top of his academic class. Mm -hmm. Um, And when he was 
then moved to Idaho Falls. Correct. Mm -hmm. And so what happened, um, he was living his dream. And he, I'm sure he was thrilled to death. He was in Idaho because of all the rock climbing possibilities. Sure. And just it was beautiful. We had been there as a family uh, when he was 15. We took a big trip out west and flew out and drove all over and went right through Idaho Falls, stayed there one night, and then went up to Yellowstone and on down through Jackson Hole and all. But um, so he knew where he was headed. I mean, it was just pure chance he got that. Mm. And he was delighted. And so he had rented an apartment over line, you know, just online, you find the apartment. And, but he was only there a few weeks, I think. Only I, a few weeks. <clears throat> well, you know, it was late August, he called. And I can tell you where I was in the house, you know, on the phone, one extension, he was on the other. And then we were all excited about where he was and what he was doing. And he, I, I just said, Rob, what's, what's wrong? You don't sound right. And he, he sounded just really flat. And he said, well, I just went to the doctor and they did a test on a thing on my back and I have melanoma. And we work in hospital. We know what melanoma is. So, ugh. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, it's skin cancer. Mm -hmm. It's probably one of the most, you know, treatable cancers if you have it, find it early. But what what was that like? I'm sure you got on the quickest plane you could to go out there. Pretty quick. He said he was having surgery in like two days or some. Two or three. Two or three, some number. So we went to bed that night and I got up and we had a new computer that the FBI had actually by chance helped me <laughs> set up. I got online, you know, what's going to cost us to get a ticket from Fort Wayne to Idaho Falls? And it was like twelve or $1,500. Per ticket. Per ticket. Yeah, in 1998 money. And so it was not another good feeling. So we ended up driving to Indianapolis and flying to Salt Lake City and driving up to Idaho Falls, which was turned out it was a pleasant drive. Was which was really a solution. good thing. I think it allowed everybody some decompression time uh, between the time that we flew in and, and then arrived well, five at, hours later. Well, you guys being in the hospital system, you know, them wanting to do surgery so quick, you knew this was not something that was, oh, let's just take a little bit off. And, and you knew that you might mm -hmm. be in something. Somehow it was feeling bad. Yeah. So you know, I can't remember if he told us any more information about it, but it was feeling serious. So you guys arrived mm -hmm. and he has surgery. And the next yes. day, I guess. And he didn't feel too good. So Lynn and I had driven up over the mountains to a place that most people know about or have been, Jackson Hole. And I think that drive was um, a cleansing almost of, of all the jumble in our minds about what is going on and what will be going on from this point forward. Well, he sent us. He didn't feel good enough that day to go do something. And I right. think he needed some time by was himself. Was he still in the hospital? No, he, no, he was pretty much outpatient. Okay. But it was enough he was in a sling. He was uncomfortable. And I think he had just needed a little time by himself. Anyway, yeah. So he's, you know, because we're, no, we're not leaving you. No, yes, please go. Oh, yeah, 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 right. <laughs> you know, he was, could be very definite about what he needed. And so we did. It was a beautiful day to go up through the mountains. But during that drive, I mean, we talked between ourselves and, and realized that we had a, a struggle for the family on our hands, especially for him. Um, and when we returned, then he felt well enough 
maybe a day or two later, and he went with us, and we drove back up north through the western part of Mon to the eastern part of Montana and entered through the Montana gate to Yellowstone and then spent some time at Old Faithful. And he withstood the trip well, but I think he slept a lot on the way back. One of us slept a lot on the way back. <laughs> but it was, it, was a good, it was a good time hmm. during a very difficult... Yeah, there was a definite cloud over the whole thing. That it, I, now, Kristen and Heather, his two sisters, were not mm -hmm. with you guys at that Correct. point. Right. Kristen was already working in Chicago, and Heather was at Purdue. She was a student at Purdue in engineering. And so, yeah. I mean, of course, you're calling them and giving them updates. This right. is their oldest brother. Um, and, and so he was transferred. Well, first, let's go. So when did you know that he was going to be leaving Idaho Falls to come back closer to home? It was just a couple more days. A couple more I'm days. And normal, in, normally, I think, <clears throat> I had mentioned previously that to be transferred in the FBI, a rapid transfer would be 60 days. Um, and usually it's more like 90 or more. And when the agents in charge in Idaho Falls and the physician uh, made it known to the uh, people in Washington, the transfer was made in about 48 hours. Because by then we knew that the surgery had shown that the melanoma was deep. It wasn't an early Diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, and we the, easily treatable, and he would need a lot of care while he was going through the treatment so that he could work probably most of the time, but not do take care of himself as far as, you know, clothes, food, all that. Right. So, so he was transferred back to Indianapolis. Well, at first to Fort Wayne okay. so that he could live with us. So he lived with us about three or four months and started interferon, which made him feel like he had the flu all the time. Hmm. Just that real achy thing, you know, muscle ache. So, when when did you guys know as parents that this was not, nothing was working? I don't think we ever admitted that. <laughs> but I mean... <laughs> until uh, until each, the very, like, a year and a half later, you know. Yeah, because um, he then had a follow-up surgery at the hospital where we both worked, and the, they examined lymph nodes in a situation like that, and those were clear. And then... So you felt like, oh, okay, we... That was very encouraging. Sure. Yeah, it, it certainly it had not spread. And so um, he talked with his supervisors, and at that point they decided that he could be transferred to Indianapolis, the Indianapolis office of the FBI. Because they needed him more, and, and Robert was there. adapting to the interferon so that he could actually work could, and yeah, take work care of and, yeah. and do a little bit more. at some point, um, this I believe was in the spring, following the fall when, when it was found, and again he had surgery, and um, they looked at lymph nodes, and again they were clear. And this was, again. But this was the second melanoma spot on his back in a totally mm -hmm. different place. Mm -hmm. That's, that didn't feel good. No. So. Um, so, but he had four or five months that he adapted to this treatment and was feeling okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at least decent. I mean, he still didn't have the normal amount of energy somebody would have. Okay. But he was able, he was working and 
finding, was it a quarter of a million dollars in a safe deposit box <laughs> in Indianapolis and, and you still know, feel- having a good time, making friends and creating a home there in Indianapolis. Right. So that was good. And that really was a little over a year that he was there like that. Hmm. So that, that was good because then he began to feel like that really was his home. And then he, we found that other spot. Well, somewhere in that year, I can't tell you even what month that was. I It was the FBI agent that came to be with us had on a trench coat. That's all I can tell you <laughs> what month it was. It was, must have been cold. So maybe it wasn't real long after he first went there. But he had, he you know, he just kept getting a little bit better. And then in the fall, which would have been a year after he started the interferon, I guess they only do it a year. So he could stop, he stopped the interferon. Then he started feeling better because he wasn't taking this challenging medicine. But so he had then through Christmas, he felt pretty decent. Yeah. And we were kind of optimistic, but we didn't talk about it really. You didn't, almost didn't dare, you know, it was just like, it is what it is, but it's good today. Right. So, but about February. February. Of 2000. They called and said that they had done more testing and that it was in his brain and in his liver and in his was it in his spinal cord? I can't remember. I don't know, but um, it was ever, it had it, it definitely spread. And that's there was a young Asian doctor working on him one evening at IU, and I still remember him coming out and he said he withstood the procedure, but and his voice broke and he. He tears were running down his face. Well, when you have your doctor visibly crying in front of you, you know things are are not going well. Um, but all through this, I guess our son taught us not how to die, but how to live until he died. And we had taken the family when we were in Chicago quite a few years before to see Man of La Mancha. La Mancha. And there's one song in there called The Impossible Dream. To dream the impossible dream. And one night, while Rob was in IU Medical Center, he was in there with, I believe, another law officer. It was an older man. Older man laying in the other bed, and the nurse from the hallway heard the older man and Rob singing the words to the impossible dream. <laughs> and Oh, wow. And, that was, and Rob was not a singer. No, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that that part but didn't still. even make sense. But I mean, she wouldn't make that up. So no. And so that instead of traditional church music songs, which he was not enthralled with, that was one of the songs sung by uh, two very good friends of ours. And um, at his funeral. Yeah, the the man from man of or the song from Man of La Mancha, to dream the impossible dream. Hmm. So that song is still very important to us. <laughs> so he he did go back to his apartment, and you guys had the help of hospice. Mm-hmm. When right. he, yeah, he was in the hospital then for a little bit. And, well, to back up a little bit in February when he, we were told it was more places, he, I guess I immediately left work and went and moved in with him. And, again, started taking care of house food clothes, whatever. But he still went to work at that point. But then with before too long, he had to go in a wheelchair. 
So dear Tiffany, one of his his dear friends and agent, would stop and pick him up in the morning and take him to work. And And they they were close enough that sometimes they would be out on a surveillance or whatever, and the two of them had this similar sense of humor, which Mm. would be quite dry, but yet at one point Tiffany had to quit driving. They pulled over the side of the road because they were laughing so hard at some of the things he had said, and not telling jokes, but just... The maybe the absurdity of certain situations. So he had a great support group there. You know, at one point we thought, well, he may want to go back to his Bluffton home, and he said, no, Dad, this this is my home. Mm. This mm. is where the people who mean a lot to me are located. And so those people wrapped their collective arms around him, either taking him to work, and. Um, one day at work, he was in a wheelchair, and um, one of the agents said something about how courageous he was. And say, things like that for, for Robbie, I think, could make him quite feel uncomfortable. But the agents all stood as a unit and applauded. And so that night, I said, how did that feel? And he said, really good. Oh, wow. Wow. Did he, did he know, I mean, it, they, he had stopped treatment at this. Correct. And so in February of 2000, they, they said they're, I guess we were in, in the hospital and, and this makes me feel good when we're talking and hearing your program about doctors who over treat. I, I should be able to remember that doctor's name because he was well known in Indianapolis for cancer treatment. And he came into the room again, I can picture that room and where everybody stood and he said, Rob, we really can't do anything else for you. And just clear as anything and factual without emotion. And Rob just, again, he, he looked without emotion and he said, okay, I think he knew. Do you have any questions? The doctor asked. And Rob said, yes, can you keep me comfortable? The doctor said, yes, I promise you that. That was Dr. <clears throat> Einhorn. There's his name. At IU Med Center who was quite renowned, a good friend of ours. In fact, the doctor that delivered our two other children um, developed cancer later in, well, in midlife, and Dr. Einhorn was his physician. So, I mean, he was well-known in the state of Indiana and beyond. So I felt like he he took no second best as far as treatment, but um, it was a difficult situation. So... It yeah. was only a short amount of time. Right, but that was in February and in March. And I was really stunned by this. I mean, he was in some ways quite ill. In other ways, he was able to go to, to work, but he was given... He was not yet in a wheelchair. But he was given some days off, and two agents, one an IRS agent who wears a gun, not the type you would want coming to your house if you had missed <laughs> up on your taxes. And the other was his faithful partner, Tiffany Bates. And Tiffany and Lorna Eagle, what a name for an agent, um, took him to Florida, um, St. Pete's Beach, at a place called Tradewinds. And um, they had a three special days. But, mm. you know, he because he was on steroids for the control of the lesions that he had, um, 
that made him want to eat vast amounts of food. And um, so he did. So he did. And it was it was like a it was like a flower opening in the midst of a terrible storm. Mm. It was it was good for him. And. uh, But again, after they returned, uh, that was March 7th for about three or four days. And um, they were they provided people to be with us. And by that Frequently. time, about the time after he came back, then you moved down in with him, too. He had a one-bedroom apartment. And so <laughs> we just moved right in. And I was there maybe the month before you were. And um, that somehow worked just fine. Hmm. When did the girls come down? Just Kristen came for the last maybe two or three, you know, time's kind of fuzzy, but the last two or three weeks. And then Heather was trying to finish her exams for the semester, her her next to last semester at Purdue. And of course, it's now exam time. So she was trying to hold off. But finally, she went to professor and said, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm leaving (laughs) and came down. She was there at least a week. It's Perhaps kind of fuzzy. Longer. So now there's four or five of us living in the one-bedroom apartment, and it, it worked. It was just fine. I mean, it's funny what you don't care about. Mm. We, we, he had a, a bed, and then uh, Lorna had brought in a blow-up mattress, and then by that time he had a hospital bed by the time the girls were there. So it went a sofa bed. So we had... Plenty of room. Yeah, lots it, of beds. Not much room, but a lot of beds. <laughs> <laughs> and even one night, the three girls of us were very short in our family, laid across the queen side bed sideways, so three, all three of us could sleep on the, the queen side sofa bed. And I can't even think now why we did. I, you know, I don't know what. You know, maybe those were the only sheets clean. I don't know. Right. <laughs> but but the, the main thing that comes back to me through all this is a. I thought my son was smart. I thought all three of our kids were smart, but I thought I thought he was quite intelligent. But his his ability to do what he did, even though he felt really, really bad, amazes me yet to this day. And and like I said, you think your children are smarter than the other kids, but he he um he continually surprised me. And his his ability to not be rigid and control himself, but to allow himself to live while he was dying. Mm. We we were headed to the med center one day, and I'll never forget this, and it's helped me now through the rest of my life. I said, Rob, you know, I'm going to... A friend of Heather's had loaned us a van, so it was easy for, to slide him in because he would sit on the floor. He was having trouble walking. And I said, boy, I said, this morning we've got to go down to IU, and then I wanted to stop and see about a walker, and and we need to go to the drugstore, and we also need to go to get groceries. And I was listing all of these things. And feeling very tense about and, all, you know. and And he looked up in not a criticizing way, but his kind of self-acquired southern <laughs> drawl and said, Dad, let's just do one thing at a time. And he reduced that morass of conflicting messages to just just one. We're headed to the medical center. Mm. That's all we have to think about. And that, I think, that even helped some of his 
fellow agents because most of those people are quite young. They, um, they join in their 20s, they can't join after they're 37, and they have to quit work when they're 57. So their tenure is short, and if they mean to do good things as a FBI agent, then they have to focus and, and get rid of all the extraneous material and, and take one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. And he knew that. Uh, that may seem rather simple, but when you're in the middle of a battle, like he was, to to crystallize that thought, um, I will never forget that. Mm. And, and do you remember he said we'd say, "Do you feel okay to go to work?" And and he'd say, "Well, I'm going to feel bad whether I stay home or go to work, so I might as well go to work because it's more interesting." Mm. So, so and, how long did he go into work? I think probably. Till the end of March, I or maybe into back, April. It might have been the end of the end April, of April. or yeah, end, because, into April. I don't remember. Because but. at one time they had an exercise where they were told they were being invaded, or <laughs> not supposed to say too much about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, they was, had, <laughs> but they had to do great physical activity, like rappel down the side of a building. I saw there was a picture of him, and that that was and in, he was and he was ill at that time, and that, but that. He pushed that aside. Oh, I, he loved it. <laughs> oh, he did. He did. And so the last really month of his life was he didn't go to work. I would guess it was about the last month. Right. And so during the later um, moments of his illness, he was c totally conscious until about a week out of Correct. Yes. Correct. So what are, what are the, some of the things that you and Heather and Kristen and the family talked about? I mean, agents were coming in. Agents were there a lot. In the last few weeks, they brought us dinner every night. They came in one day with a, boxes of things. We're going, what, what, what are you doing? And they had paper plates and napkins and all kinds of things, you know, household paper things. So and, the FBI really took care oh, of you. Oh, it was wonderful, both mentally and physically. Oh, I mean, wow. emotionally and physically, whatever. I mean, they, they just did. They just took care of us. Somebody was there every evening. The head of the Indiana FBI was new to that office and came in while Rob was pretty sick. He was still, when he was still going to the office in a wheelchair, that's when when Bob was transferred to Indianapolis. And so his wife was still back in Virginia. So each evening after the last three weeks or whatever, he would bring the people when they were bringing the dinner, then Bob would stop by after work and have a dinner and a glass of wine with us. Oh, nice. And just be there. And then, oh, maybe two weeks before Rob died, somewhere in there, time is fuzzy, but the um, they wanted to know if it would be okay to do an interview with the Indianapolis Star about Rob, that you know this FBI agent who's sick, and, and him we, being so young. Yeah, right. And the girls were there by then, so mm -hmm. it was just a few weeks. And so we thought, why not? And we can show you the friends oh, that had yeah. it framed. And I so think, yeah, I oh, think I remember you saying, saw it. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, they did a beautiful, a woman came and did a beautiful interview, but I remember at one point when Rob was in his hospital bed, so he was not well at all, but he said to, to Bob, who was the head of Indiana FBI, he said, if I say something, I shouldn't just throw one of those apples at me, okay, <laughs> from the fruit basket there on the table. That's funny. 
So he was, I mean, the, the sense of humor was as good as ever. And so he did die May 7th. May 7th, right. And he was in a coma about that last week. But he again, they were able to keep him comfortable. They put a port in, and we all became, luckily, Keith's a pharmacist, and we became the healthcare team. Sure. We had... It was really home health, not hospice, until the last couple of days. But would, they treat they did very hospice kind of way. But um, he had a port in, so he had all his IV medicines. So Keith and Kristen are more morning people, and they would do this six a.m. and the noon. medications and noon, and then you do six p.m. and midnight. Okay, yeah, because Heather and I are better at night. <laughs> <laughs> So we had our shifts, but the girls, they were bringing things in and the girls would sit at the dining room table and, and put individual doses from the larger doses into vials and into syringes, into syringes. I don't even know the terms, but it was just crazy what we were doing, but it took four of us to do it. That's what I, some people say, oh, I feel so bad that he had to go to the hospice home or the nursing care or something. I said, unless there's four of you. (laughs) Right. I don't recommend doing it. Doing, you know, taking care like that. It was just crazy, but it was it felt really good to be right. able to do that. Yeah. And, you know, his funeral, a lot of people from Garner came. Oh, yeah. I mean, you had a packed house. Well, we had agents from his graduating class. So someone was in Washington D.C. and one was in New Mexico and I don't remember if anybody came from Idaho Falls. But then so many agents from Indianapolis came that we all laughed that it would have been a great time to pull a robbery in, in Indianapolis because they were all in Bluffton. Oh, it, wow. It was, it was, I read at least 40 or more agents plus Indiana State Police and police, local police officers. Um, and um, we, we really were not in charge at that point, Bob called from the office in Indianapolis and said, we would like to provide the following. And well, and, and Jack, his, his wonderful, he hadn't been assigned as a supervisor, but he came as, became a supervisor. He really did a large part of the, the funeral planning. And that's why when you tell people to plan their funeral, it really would be helpful because we were brain dead by then. And Jack would say, is it okay if we do this? And I remember saying, anything you want to do to honor Rob, that's that's just fine. I if I don't know what we would have done otherwise. Can we have taps? Can we have a bagpipe? Can we have a twenty-one gun, you know, squad firing, um, and so on and so forth? And <clears throat> and we were just like, oh, really? Wow. <laughs> but it must have been surreal, though. It surreal was. is a good word. And Be- and, and again, you just the, feel like you're floating. All the agents being very young. I mean, Tiffany is on one side of the casket. Lorna, the IRS, and Mendez, and Jim Mendez, his his other partner. He had the two primary partners. Um, they, they were all deeply involved. And um, well, and when we left Indianapolis to come back to Bluffton, where we had the service, they assigned Tiffany and Mendez to go with us. Oh, wow. And so they were just there, like, they went to the grocery, and and they, matter of fact, Mendez, our, a friend of mine, ours, was planting the spring flowers in the front of our house <laughs> when we got there. And, and, and Mendez says, well, I'm the one with the Spanish heritage. I guess I'm the, the lawn <laughs> boy. I'll, I'll help water these. I'm, I'm the gardener. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
And I mean, everybody was doing this. I have no idea what we were doing. Mm. I, I just, Wandering again, I, I feel probably. like a float, you know, I think with this big triple size head. So, mm. but it was just amazing. The friends in Bluffton and the friends from Indianapolis FBI and just everybody poured out. Right, right. And our church was fabulous. Our minister had been with us in, in Indianapolis mm, at least three or four times. And, you know, I, I question it because I think it even hit Garner newspaper and I must have already moved. For some reason, I kind of still think like, how is it that I did not know about this? Isn't that yeah. bizarre? It is bizarre. And so, you know, you know, like the book in the book, um, I talk a little bit about how I found out about Rob and I ended up phoning you on the Monday after a friend's wedding and thinking, how am I going to track down Rob's parents to figure out what the heck happened? And what was it like to be on the other side of that phone when I called? It was good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't even remember being emotional, especially. I was just kind of well, definitely surprised. And, and, <laughs> and, and I just enjoyed talking with you because somebody said, well, how did you know to invite her to your house? Are you sure that's a good thing? <laughs> and first of all, I trusted Rob's judgment. He wouldn't stick with somebody for a year we wouldn't like. And second of all, just talking to you, I could tell. And third of all, if you were with hospice, you must be good. Right, you know? right. I mean that, well, and okay. Secret is that I called a friend of Rob's too. Said, <laughs> I, we're thinking she's really good. And I, I, did you enjoy being with her? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I thought, well, I might as well have that one check. Yeah. I, you know, the funny thing is, I remember um, saying, you know, I'm looking for Rob Apple's parents and he was in the Garner police and he was in the FBI. And I, I still hear you say, well, you're talking to his mother. And, and it was just a random phone call you made. Isn't that bizarre? And you had just moved. Your number wasn't even listed yet. Probably not. And you just happened to be at home unpacking. Yeah, I was just standing there. I can. I think I was practically standing by the phone. And, that, <laughs> and so we did, I did come and visit you guys. But Soon, yeah. Yeah, I think it was like in April. And oh, you no May, remember, because it was on May, this May 7th. We always. Yeah, we got. I, but I think I've made the phone call in April. And then oh, we, right. And I correct. flew out. Yeah, correct. And for his, was that the third anniversary? Mm, we what? need to go look at the photo album. I think it was the, yeah, 2004. Then, or five. Yeah, one of those dates. Right. Um, and we spent, I got to meet your mothers mm -hmm. who have even now have passed on. Right. And, um, Heather and, and Kristen and who else was there? I don't think anybody else was there, but we, the dog, Arthur. Yeah. The, uh, who's still here among us today. But we, I remember us, um, watching slideshows of Rob as a child and the kids and getting down, um, that the old timey slide where the, you know, that little, oh, right. Sure. In the, in that little and carousel carousel. Yes. And so the funny thing is when I had arrived back in Wilmington, you know, a lot of people didn't know who Rob was and, and you had written an article in, and is it an insurance? Oh, right. Right. MetLife. Yeah. And so newsletter. So I'm run into a friend as I'm getting off the plane and she is like in tears and she's like, I just read this crazy story about 
this boy dying of cancer and the girlfriend actually comes back and meets the parents. I'm like, let me see this. And there your family's picture, <laughs> oh, picture. is sitting right there. And I'm like, what in the world? It just seems like... Um, you the, couldn't get away. Well, the timing, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if I would even have been prepared to even know about that prior to that moment at that mm-hmm. wedding. Um, well, and, and it's weird that Rob didn't connect with you before to tell you. And even I remember one morning he was in the hospital and I was just hell bent on getting there now and none of the rest of them were ready yet. And so I went ahead in whatever car we had at that point. And, and I, so I was there with him alone and I said, Rob, I know you're dying and you know you're dying. So we need to, you know, just be honest about that. Do you have any unfinished business I can help you with? And he said no. Mm-hmm. So he must have felt like you weren't supposed to know. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. You know, and I almost, think about that. Yeah, I know. I mean, and I, you know, I feel like it, maybe he didn't want me to know, mm-hmm. or I That's don't know what I think, yeah. you know, that I, the last time I saw him, he was strong. He was an FBI agent. And, you know, I think what would, what would be the good to bring her back into the situation? Well, right you now? talked about at one point saying that you mm-hmm. really didn't know if you could handle losing another dear f- friend and, and maybe that, re- he, that really stuck with him. Right. Yeah. Cause um, I would tell him when he worked night shift to be careful. Mm-hmm. I love that he did is living out his dream but I didn't know if I could lose someone else so, so young. And I mm-hmm. think maybe that. I Yeah, that sounds suspicious. Yeah. So, but I'm glad I at least asked him that. And Yeah. You know. And so what is it like for you guys? Here it is almost 18 years later after Rob has died. And now this whole live well, die well, he's in the book. And so many, if I, if I have anything to say with it, millions of people will know who your son is and the impact he had. I mean, what is that like? Well, it's special. I can tell you that because I think um, somebody once said, you know, everybody dies, but it's really terrible to die alone. Well, he didn't die alone. And, and, um, and also there's a, when you, perhaps visit the Bluffton Library, there's a plaque on the wall uh, with his name on it. Uh, and I don't know how important plaques are, but, but again, it goes back to not, not being forgotten. Um, those who care and love about you or love you who won't forget, but um, sometimes to walk in there and just see that or have a friend stop you and say, I just noticed the plaque, um, and how are you doing, and, and so on and so forth. Um, but there, there's, at times, there's, for me, it's, it's almost a time warp. It, it mm-hmm. seems like it's a long time, and it was, and it was not that long ago. Mm. Um, but I believe he, he lifts people up, I hope it, he makes me better than I might be at times. Um, he left, without preaching, he left a lot of messages, like little notes here and there, uh, mental notes. Mental, yeah, not written. No, no He written. wrote some things, but... Um, 
of course, nothing like this. And it is very good, of course, to remember that he's being remembered. But I think as much as remembered is continuing to do something important. Mm. And he would like that, mm-hmm. you know. And even the FBI agent or the FBI office in Indianapolis has a conference room in his name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look forward to visiting uh, there and, and seeing that as well. And, um, you know, I, I do. The last thing I remember is being in Walmart where we usually never went. But we, I guess we had to stop by. Rob and I had to stop by in Garner, North Carolina. And there was this guy that came up and was like, hey, Officer Apple. And I was like, who is he? And Rob's like, shh, shh, you know, let's get to the car. And so I was like, who was that guy? Thinking that he had just met him, there were friends or whatever. And he goes, well, I arrested him last week. And I think if that doesn't say who Rob is, mm-hmm. I mean, he treated people with just so much dignity and respect. <laughs> Those are the words I was thinking. Yeah. I mean, and just, I mean, even the people he was arresting wanted mm-hmm. to be his friend um, <laughs> and and be like, hey, how's it going? And he was like, remember me? And Rob's like, yes, I remember you. I mean, just. Well, and, and nothing derogatory. Yeah. he one, one one person he arrested a second time said, you're the nicest ossifer who's ever arrested me. <laughs> right. And and I, it, it is mm-hmm. it is sort of weird, but I remember when we first met um, that a few years after we you and I had some time, Lynn, at the kitchen table and or the bar up there at, at your house, and we were I was just still I think in complete shock that he was was gone because you when you really love someone you want them to have everything that they wanted. And so he was, he wanted, he wanted, I think he really wanted to be a father and and children and Mm -hmm. he just, and, and so it was just a shock that, that, that was not in the cards for him. But you said, maybe one day you will write about this. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying, I don't know Mm -hmm. if I could ever write about this. I really thought you would. Yeah. And that's, I never thought I would. And so, you know, so many years later, I had to track you guys down once again because <laughs> we moved again. Yeah, you moved closer like to. Yeah, <laughs> we have to keep a cold trail. That's right, <laughs> but you moved closer to Heather and her family with Correct. the grandkids and grandkids. and I uh, and the rest is history. And here we are. Here we are again. Here we are again. Wonder what the future will bring. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Thank you for this. This has uh, been very very good. Yeah. And it's, it's always nice to remember Rob. I, and you and I were talking at lunch, Keith, about how you hear him whispering in your ear and it's, I have such a spiritual connection with him. Mm -hmm. So he's not really gone. No. His spirit will always be here. Yeah. And just, and hearing some of these places that he has been, that I'm getting ready to go on the tour about Idaho Falls and Indianapolis Mm -hmm. and Florida at the last beach trip. And you know, that there are some people that grace your life for a very short amount of time that end up impacting, impacting your life for the life, your incomplete life. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Rob Apple is one of those people for me. So I'm just grateful to be sitting in front of his parents and celebrating Mm -hmm. who he was for to me, but just to see who he was to everyone and your family was it's just really special. Well, thank you, Kimberly. I think there are like 750 independent living residents at Otterbein Senior Life here in Lebanon. And they, I would guess at least 100 and 200 of them know Rob now. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I wouldn't have 
planned that as a goal, but I feel good about that. Yeah. And then hopefully they, he will be doing them some good as far as they all seem very intent on listening to you and thinking, do I have all my ducks in a row? And yeah. And what do I need to be doing? And we'll have the panel next week to talk about how do you make these plans and what are these forms and all that. Yep. It's very important because you know what, this is the one thing I do know if, if Rob died the way he wanted to, not in pain with his family and FBI people around him, and you've got to hold true to that and hold on to that. And, and he did, he instructed us very much that he didn't give a hoot about the funeral or or where he was buried, but he wanted to be cremated, and he he wanted when he was he wanted to die in his own apartment with all of us there. And he said, "I don't want to hear preaching or you know sad Bible verses or anything. I want to hear people talking and laughing." Mm. And so a Sunday afternoon, we spent the entire afternoon talking and laughing. And it we was the four of our family and three FBI agents. And in the background, there was a Chicago Cubs game. And he went to a game with me when I know he really didn't feel like it because we had to drive quite a distance uh, from Indy to get there. And I love the Cubs. Isn't that weird? <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> well, the Cubs, to me, in a way... I'm getting, this is too philosophical, but represent life because for so many years they didn't win. <laughs> but on the other hand, there was always next year. There was That's almost right. the eternal glow of rebirth. Um, they didn't plan it that way, but that's the way it was. And I think that's why so many people were devoted to them. Um, Perhaps there are many other reasons. <laughs> the but, team uh, of hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, the story with my listeners and I, I tell you I will never forget that year of my life and it's just sort of reliving it a little bit every time and and you're right I think he is still here with us and that's what we can celebrate every day exactly thank you Kimberly thank you, Kimberly. I love you guys <laughs> I love you Thank you so much for all the support over the last two years. Next season, we'll have a different format as you will journey alongside me as we visit each state on my Live Well, Die Well tour. And never forget, you're the designer.